Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, friends, thanks so much for listening to the podcast. And we want to make sure that you know about all the other exciting ways to get more exclusive content from The Bill Press Show. We're on Patreon. Did you know that? On Patreon. So to go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash BP show to get videos that nobody else gets. All we ask is five bucks a month and you get access to daily commentary. And every week we put up a special interview just for our Patreon subscribers. Hey, it's a great way to support progressive media and get your hands on some fun, new, exclusive content. Thanks so much for supporting the show by going to patreon.com slash BP show. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show. Live at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Yes, I committed crimes, and yes, Paul Manafort told me to do it. So testified uh, his top deputy, Rick Gates, deputy campaign manager for Donald Trump yesterday. Testified yesterday in an Alexandria, Virginia courtroom. Uh, hello, everybody. What do you say? On a Tuesday, August 7, hello, hello, hello. Great to see you. Welcome to the program, The Bill Press Show. Here we go. We are reaching out to you from our studio in Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. With all the rundown, the news of the day, and uh, even with the House out of town and the Senate out of town and Donald Trump out of town, there's still a lot going on, a lot to talk about, and a lot that you will want to comment on indeed. So uh, get ready. Line up wherever you are in this great land of ours. Wherever you are around the globe, line up to send us your comments on Twitter, at uh, BP Show. Great lineup of guests today, and of course, we'll be looking at the impact of Rick Gates' testimony yesterday. It was a blockbuster in that uh, Alexandria courtroom, uh, sitting closer than I am to Peter Ogburn from uh, Paul Manafort. Uh, he said, yes, we committed crimes. We committed them together, and I committed them at Paul Manafort's direction. Uh, the Koch brothers in a little pissing contest with Donald Trump and the Republican National Committee and Donald Trump still attacking California with the worst wildfires they've ever experienced, attacking California rather than reaching out to help the people of California. We'll take it all in and uh, give, us, give you a chance to comment on it at BP Show. But first... This is the Full Court Press. All righty, here we go. Just a couple of other stories making news. Well, it's uh, summertime, as you know. You don't normally think of hailstorms. That is exactly what happened yesterday in Colorado Springs. A massive hailstorm hit in Colorado Springs. Chunks of hail the size of golf balls fell in Colorado Springs, specifically at the Colorado Zoo, which made a huge problem 
as people that were visiting the zoo yeah. had to run for cover, and it actually killed some animals. Two mm. birds, one was a duck, one was a vulture, both died after being struck by hail that fell. Uh, car windows were shattered. Some of the buildings were uh, uh, damaged by this huge hail. One person that was at the zoo actually had a video of the bear enclosure. And the bears were just sort of like running around looking for cover because they, there wasn't really anywhere to go. This hail was falling. So uh, just a total freak thing happening, which is, I guess, sort of the new normal. We have to get ready for I, I saw the weirdness of yeah, the weather. Yeah, I saw some of the video from that. They were bigger than golf balls. They were some like of them were, tennis yeah. balls. Yeah, some of them yeah, were I huge, mean. huge pieces of hail. By the way, you'll be proud of this, Bill. The West Hollywood City Council uh, last night. West Hollywood, where I lived for about four years. Your Love people. West Hollywood. Your people. Well, last night they called for Donald Trump's star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame to be removed. Well, it's been... It it's been removed. I was going to say, it's yeah. been removed with a pickaxe. <laughs> pick Not officially. <laughs> Somebody showed up and destroyed it. Uh, other people have defaced it, but this was definitely the most damage that the stars received. So the West Hollywood City Council last night said, let's just take it away. They unanimously passed a resolution asking the Hollywood Chamber of Commerce to remove the star from the Walk of Fame there in Hollywood. I know, Very interesting. I know several members of the uh, West Hollywood City Council, friends of mine then, and are still in the, there and on the city council, so good for them. I mean, look, if you're just being practical about it, you know that that is going to be a lightning rod, whether someone else destroys it or protests or whatever. So it, it's not a bad idea to just get rid of it altogether, just be done with it, and then you don't have to worry about it anymore. Uh, and let's remember, those stars are fake. Yes, they are yes, phony. thank you. People pay for them. They <laughs> buy them. They only exist because they put the money up. How else do you think Donald Trump got a star on the Hollywood Hall of Walk of Fame? It's not a real honor. This is the Bill Press Show. Rick Gates testifying yesterday says, yes, I stole for Paul Manafort and I stole from Paul Manafort. Crime is committed. First evidence of criminal activity we've seen in the Robert Mueller investigation. Hello, everybody. Happy Tuesday, Tuesday, August 7. So good to see you today. Thank you for joining us. It is the Bill Press Show. We are your source for news of the day uh, from a progressive point of view, for sure. Uh, and your first source of news of the day and your first chance to comment on what's happening around the globe and here in Washington and around the country. Uh, so that's why we're glad to have you with us. You're very much a part of the show. Don't forget, get ready to send your comments on Twitter uh, at BP Show as we join you everywhere you happen to be, particularly in this great land of ours, uh, whether you're uh, at home, driving to work, already at work, uh, out for a walk or whatever, we join you online on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. If you're looking at us on your uh, big screen or your little screen, we are there on Free Speech TV and, of course, on the radio statewide in Indiana and Indiana Talks and uh, out in the great city of Chicago and the Chicago suburbs on WCPT, the progressive voice of Chicago. You know, um, 
Good to have you with us today. I, I just got to say something before we jump into the news of the day. I mean, I just want to get this off my chest just because I've been watching you. Know, we have the monitors in the studio. We've heard of them often with all the cable shows and the morning shows. CNN right now has Anthony Scaramucci on the air. Oh, why? Why? Every morning almost they have the mooch on and they identify him as former White House communications director. I mean, this is a disgrace for CNN. For like three days. <laughs> he was, yeah, he was communications director for three days. The guy has zero credibility. And we remember he was fired even from the Trump White House. You got to do really bad to be fired from the Trump. Because he said some things we cannot repeat on the air. He is a total trash bucket. I mean, he doesn't deserve to be on television. Certainly doesn't deserve to be on CNN. As a person who appears often on CNN and one who worked at Two different contracts with CNN and six years as co-host of CNN's Crossfire. I find it very, very offensive and am uh, yeah, uh, embarrassed for my former employer. You don't have to put these people on. No, you don't, you have, don't to have to put, put him on. on. There are plenty of plenty of people that they can put on who could talk about the Trump administration. There he is. He's still on. By the way, you know, if I go on, I get maybe two minutes. He's on there for like oh, 15 yeah. minutes. Oh, yeah. Scaramucci. Yeah. Disgusting. Disgrace. Worse than Fox and Friends this morning. All right, got that out of the way. Yeah, how about it? Good to see you uh, today with a lot to talk about. And yes, indeed, it was stunning yesterday. Uh, the big deal was, you know, after like 15 warm-up witnesses, when were they going to get to the big guy, going to get to Rick Gates? He was, remember, he started out as an, a very interesting career. He started out as an intern uh, working for Paul Manafort and worked his way up to be Paul Manafort's top deputy in Manafort's consulting slash lobbying business. Uh, and then when Manafort became chair of the Donald Trump campaign, I got to keep reminding people of that because everybody says, whoa, what's this trial in Alexandria has nothing to do with the Trump campaign. Yes, it does. He was the chairman of the Trump campaign. Maybe the crimes he committed were not related Fine. to the Trump campaign, yeah. but crimes he committed, he committed while he was still chair exactly. of the Trump campaign. Right. All right? Is there any, is, does this get tied no. directly back to Trump, that Trump did something? Maybe uh, not. No. Maybe not. But, but yeah. He, he, you know, he's one of the guys that Trump bragged about having the best people around him, right? He's joined at the hip with Donald Trump, Paul Manafort is. And so is Rick Gates, because when Manafort became uh, Donald Trump's campaign manager, Rick Gates became the deputy campaign manager. When Manafort was fired, Rick Gates was not. Rick Gates remained as deputy campaign manager. So he testifies yesterday, and the prosecution asked him, uh, they, they asked him point blank, right? Did you commit crimes for Donald Trump? I mean, for Paul Manafort? And he said one word, yes. Here is Cecilia Vega from um, ABC News, right? giving us the rundown of what happened in the courtroom. Coming face to face with his former business partner, Paul Manafort, Gates testified that they committed crimes together, including not reporting more than a dozen offshore accounts. The prosecutor asking, were you involved in any criminal activity with Mr. Manafort? Yes, Gates answered. Did you commit any crimes with Mr. Manafort? Yes, Gates answered again. Yes, Gates answered again, and he said that he did so, quote, at Mr. Manafort's direction. 
So, uh, yeah, the guy admits he committed crimes, but he also admits Manafort told him to do them, and Manafort knew what he was doing. Um, and he admits uh, on top of that, which, you know, you gotta you got to think about this. Some people will say, well, that makes him less credible a witness because he says he committed crimes. I think it makes him more credible a witness yeah. because he's admitted that over and above the crimes that he committed against the federal government, knowing that they were federal crimes, falsified tax returns, lied about how much money they had, lied to the accountants, lied to the federal government, lied to everybody, lied to the banks, lied to everybody. He did that in Manafort's direction. On top of that, he says, he um, embezzled hundreds of thousands of dollars from Manafort to pad his own account because he saw how Paul Manafort was living high on the hog, and you know he wanted a little bit of that high lifestyle as well. Uh, I I thought the headline in the Washington Post this morning really sums it up. It says uh, he 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 stole for Paul Manafort, and he stole from Paul Manafort. Uh, Rick Gates, at that point, I got to tell you, every day it looks like a stronger and stronger case. And I said this when it started. You may recall. Robert Robert Mueller cannot afford to lose this case. This is this is, not that the investigation will be terminated after if he doesn't, but this is a real test of Manafort's of, of of well Manafort's too, but of Mueller's credibility in front of the entire world. Uh, and a friend of mine was telling me last night uh, who had a conversation with a top FBI official who said, "Let me tell you something. We, the FBI, don't go into court." unless we know we're going to win. They would not be taking this case unless they knew they had a solid, solid case. And it sure as hell looks like it. And they've lined everybody up, everybody up involved in this except Manafort himself. But if Mueller can't afford to lose it, neither can Paul Manafort. So if Paul Manafort loses it, you know, he could be like 30 years in jail. And then, remember, he faces a second trial next month on other charges brought by uh, by federal charges brought by these are the civil charges and they're criminal but they're related to financial activities the federal charges uh, uh related closer to what Donald Trump was all about are come next month in a in a in a Washington tr- here trial here in Washington DC so there's a lot on the line here and by the way Donald Trump cannot afford for Paul Manafort to lose this trial either something tells me really un- how further unravels his story. Something tells me that the inmates, uh, wherever Paul Manafort goes, mm-hmm. are not going to appreciate his multiple thousands of dollars that he spent on ostrich suits. Well, I don't think clothes. he'll be wearing his ostrich coat in the... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't, think, I don't think you're allowed to wear it to the lockup. No. <laughs> that would be a bad idea, by yeah. the way. Uh, would be a very bad idea. So there's a lot going on here. Keep your eyes on it. In the meantime, uh, in the meantime, Donald Trump's lawyers are still saying, well, we're negotiating um, right now with Robert Mueller about whether or not uh, Donald Trump would ever uh, volunteer to uh, meet with him and answer questions, which Mueller has requested, or whether he would even answer a subpoena uh, from the special counsel. Uh, of course, that's Rudy Giuliani's territory with the help of Jay Sekulow, Jay Sekulow, uh, again, who we played this yesterday, but it got to do it again. So here, this is the guy. Remember, and the other thing that's going on right now is all this changing of the story, which we talked about yesterday, about uh, what happened at that June 9, 2016 
big meeting at Trump Tower called by Donnie Jr., where we were first told it was about adoptions and we were told no, and, and even Donald Trump a couple of days ago saying, no, it was all about getting dirt on Hillary, but it was totally legal. And we were first told that and the story about adoptions came from a White House statement from Air Force One dictated by Donald Trump, although at first, again, we were told Donald Trump had nothing to do with it. Then we were told he did dictate the statement. Uh, and um, Jay Sekulow is the one who went out on the Sunday shows and said, no, the president was in his room on Air Force One. He didn't know anything about this. Now that we know that the president dictated the statement, George Stephanopoulos asking Jay Sekulow Sunday, so what's up with that, dude? Uh, I, had, I had bad information at that time. I made a mistake in my statement. I've talked about that before. Uh, that happens when you have cases like this. So should we just accept, I, I might point out that the, the mooch is still on CNN. Ugh. Okay. Um, I'll let you know when he gets off. Maybe. Please. Yeah. Well, he can't, I guess Donald Trump won't call in like he does to Fox and Friends, so <laughs> they have the mooch. Uh, at any rate, <laughs> so we should just accept the fact that, wait a minute, a lawyer for the president of the United States working in the White House gets bad information, shall we call it a lie, from the president of the United States? Is this like the new normal? ABC's legal analyst Dan Abrams yesterday talking to George Stephanopoulos says, no way. The idea that a lawyer for the president of the United States is coming forward and saying, hey, you know, I had bad information, you know, as if that happens all the time, that a lawyer for the president gets bad information about a from critical... The president, from the president, I mean, this doesn't happen. So you've got the evolving statements about was the president involved in writing the initial statement for Donald Jr. Um, to what the, was the purpose of the meeting. Yeah, right. It doesn't happen. No, you expect the president. You expect the president's lawyer to know the truth and not to be out there spreading lies and then say, oh, I'm sorry, I just had bad information. Mm -hmm. By the way, yeah. it's insane. that the, I mean, this is not something that a lawyer at this high of a level would be capable of, but also let's not forget well, who one of his other attorneys is, Rudy Giuliani. Rudy. Yes. So somebody went on Fox yesterday and said that Rudy must be chain smoking cigarettes to uh, constantly be worried about what Donald Trump is going to treat, tweet. So last night Rudy tweeted. Rudy doesn't tweet very often. No, no. Rudy tweeted, "There is a moron at, on Fox claiming I chain smoke cigarettes, worrying about the president's tweets. I don't smoke cigarettes." I hate me, except he meant to write, I hate him. Oh, but I he misspelled, okay. I hate that, me. Yeah. Uh, I smoke only premium cigars, and I hope this idiot is not a lawyer, because if he is, he should sue his law school. <laughs> so that's what Rudy Giuliani is worried about. Someone making a joke about him. Uh, by the way. Smoking cigarettes. By the way. Yeah. Does he remind you of somebody? Yeah, God. I mean, you it could an, have been ghostwritten. You get a little bit of criticism from somebody on television. On some channel yeah. that most people haven't seen, and then you have to tweet to the world about it. Complete with misspelling, by the yes. way. Yeah, yes. by the way. Yes. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> they have become they become the same person. Uh, by the way, uh, there's something else going on here. It, it, uh, so that's the Manafort trial. But a uh, uh, final point in the Manafort trial. What has Donald, Donald Trump said about the fact that his campaign chairman has been accused of like 35 counts of criminal activity, 
Donald Trump says he was he's been treated unfairly. Alphonse Capone. Yes, like Alphonse Capone. Treated unfairly is all he will say. Uh, we'll see what he says when Paul Manafort is found guilty, which, trust me, is going to happen. The other thing that's happening, <laughs> sort of related to Donald Trump, well, no, he's in the middle of it, that I find totally amusing we haven't talked about yet, and that is Donald Trump's war with the Koch brothers. Now, you know what happened? The Koch brothers, first of all, we look, I wrote a book about the Koch brothers, right? The Obama hate machine. These are the guys who get their corporate buddies together. They are big oil, big gas company. That's all they are. And their one, their one goal is to get rid of all, they've said this, get rid of all environmental regulations so the oil, oil, oil and gas companies can do whatever the hell they want, pollute all they want. The Koch brothers, I th- still think, hold the record for fines that they have paid for polluting the air and the water over the years. These are bad dudes. They're bad guys. And they collectively put together about six, $800 million a year, all of which goes to Republican candidates who will follow their anti-environmental agenda. Well, the Koch brothers are also free traders. And by the way, they are sort of New York snobs, right? They're not the kind of in-the-gutter talk Republican that Donald Trump is. So they had their big meeting in Colorado last weekend where they put together, by the way, $400 million from their corporate buddies to spend this year on behalf of Republican candidates. Uh, and they said, uh, you know, we're not happy with Donald Trump's tariffs. And plus, we're not happy with all of the language uh, we see and the sort of disarray out of the White House. Again, Donald Trump not being able to take any criticism at all. He put out a blast. We, we did read this email end of last week where he attacked the Koch brothers, called them globalist, elitist. He never needed their money. He didn't want their money. He didn't have their support. He won without their support uh, and basically told them to go home and, and stay out of politics. And then, to make it even worse, the chair of the RNC, Rona McDaniels, I think her name. Not Romney. Romney. But, hey, she but, dropped but that Romney. She dropped that Romney, that middle name, Romney. Uh, at any rate, she put out a statement, believe it or not, put out a statement c- telling Republican donors around the country, do not give money to the Koch brothers. If you want to help the Republican Party, you have to give money to the RNC. It's the only, I'm paraphrasing, but that was her message. It was very clear and very strong. You have to give money to the RNC because that's the only way your money will be well spent. Do not give any money to the Koch brothers. I mean, this is so insane. I just, first of all, I love it. I mean, yeah, it's kind of great. This is like Republicans doing what Democrats usually do, which is form the circular firing squad and standing on the sidelines watching Donald Trump and the Koch brothers in a pissing contest is really, it's, it's lots of fun. But it's insane because, number one, it's insane on Donald Trump's part because. These people are going to spend $400 million this year. They're not, give, they're not going to give one penny to a Democrat. Now, they may not support every Republican that Donald Trump supports, but they're going to give all of that money to Republicans for governor, for Senate, for Congress. I don't even think they get down to the state legislative level. All of it, $400 million. So what Donald Trump ought to be saying is, thank you, thanks for helping us yeah. get more Republicans Yes, elected. No. Instead, again, you can't take that little criticism about the tariffs. Of course they don't like their tariffs. They're right. The tariffs are destructive to this economy and already are and going to get worse and worse and worse. 
So that's silly on his part. And it's silly on their part because the one guy who has done more than anybody else to wreck the EPA and to get rid of environmental regulations, including the one last week uh, the, on, the, on the new CAFE standards for new cars, getting rid of that is just like getting rid of the climate change accord, uh, the Paris climate change accords. The one has done more than anybody else. The, what the Trump, what the Koch brothers want is Donald Trump, and yet because they dared criticize him, him on the tar- criticize him on the tariffs, uh, he started this war with the Koch brothers. Well, you know what? Yeah, let them kill each other off. It's but. it's really refreshing to see the other side implode, Bill. We we're so used to seeing no, Democrats do. do this. Uh, love it. I I was on with two Republicans, uh, one from the RNC, uh, Kaylee McEnany, and. Uh, Another Rick Tyler, Tyler, I think his name was, right? Yeah. Republican uh, strategist on MSNBC last uh, last Saturday. And the two of them went first and was my turn. I just told Alex Wood, I've never enjoyed three minutes of television so much in my life <laughs> as watching these two guys <laughs> battling each other out. So we'll see. We'll see how that happens. Uh, yes. And meanwhile, Donald, this, this is what really drives me crazy. With the wildfires in California, the Mendocino County fire now is the largest ever, the worst in the state's history. The largest ever may not have consumed more homes yet because it's in Mendocino County, uh, which is not that heavily populated, uh, like some of the fires that we've seen around Los Angeles. But it is huge, hundreds of thousands of acres, totally out of control. It grew like 80% in the last couple of days. Yeah, it's insane how quickly it's grown. Right. And uh, what have we seen from Donald Trump? Was there any expression of support for the people of, uh, let's say, empathy or sympathy for the people of California, the victims of this fire, the thousands who've lost their homes, the thousands who've been evacuated, living in shelters, the firefighters on the front line, any any word of great job for those California firefighters? No, no, no. Instead, he's been tweeting, and I got a couple of them here. So here, here's, here's Donald Trump's tweets about uh, the fires in uh, uh, in California, right? Um, California wildfires are being magnified and made so much worse by the bad environmental laws which aren't allowing massive amounts of readily available water to be properly utilized. It's being diverted into the Pacific Ocean. Then yesterday, he followed up with another tweet. Governor Jerry Brown must allow the free flow of the vast amounts of water coming from the north and foolishly being diverted into the Pacific Ocean can be used for fires, farming, and everything else. Think of California with plenty of water. How can somebody be so heartless? How can somebody be so mean-spirited? How can somebody be so wrong, just dead wrong? By the way, uh, nobody in California, nobody in California believes that the reason for these wildfires is because there's not enough water. The firefighters have complained about that. They got plenty of water. The problem is something Donald Trump doesn't want to talk about. The problem is climate change. The problem is the high temperatures. The problem is the high winds. And the problem is forests that are bone dry because of so many years without adequate rainfall and because of the climate change. Um, here, here's um, the deputy director of Cal Fire. 
quoted in this morning's New York Times. We have, quote, we have plenty of water to fight those wildfires. But let's be clear. It's our changing climate that is leading to more severe and destructive fires. No, he's got it right. Not you a know. partisan, not a politician, no, no. not a Democrat. It's, no. This is a guy that sees this stuff day in and day out. Now, being a Californian, I will admit there is a lot of water that flows into the Pacific. You ever cross the Golden Gate Bridge? Yeah. It's just like the Chesapeake Bay empties into the Atlantic. Why? Why? <laughs> Why? Wasting all that water. Yeah. The San Francisco Bay flows into the Pacific. Mm. Which it has for eons, right? Which is not a decision what are you going, that we made. What are you going to do about it, Donald Trump? Idiot. Just shut up when it comes to this stuff. Just shut up. He's like a little kid. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Yes, water flows into the Pacific. I happen to know because I was involved in the passage of the Wild Rivers Bill carried by my boss then, State Senator Peter Baer, that there are 58 rivers in California that flow from the mountains to the sea. 58 of them. 55 of them have already been dammed and have great big reservoirs in back of them. Three still flow free, the Eel, the Trinity, and the Klamath. Um, that's what they do. They start up in the mountains, and they flow downhill, and they flow into the Pacific Ocean. By the way, um, the Columbia River does the same thing between Washington and Oregon. I mean, Donald Trump, this is nature. It 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 feels silly to have to explain this. Like I this know. is very very obvious. But and yeah. yet the leader of the free world does not understand it. Okay, look, there's a natural disaster yeah. right anywhere. Sure. Doesn't matter. That's one place. That is one time from the White House that partisan politics just disappears. You'd like to think. Yeah, it could be Texas, it could be Alabama, it could be New York State, it doesn't matter. It could be an earthquake, it could be a tornado, it could be a hurricane, it could be wildfires. What's the response? The response is, what can we do to help? And we're and we'll send as much federal aid as we can to help the people who are suffering. And and that's why that's what we're here for. No. This is well, of course, Donald Trump doesn't do anything like any other president has done. But in his case, no. What does he do? Attack, 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 attack. Oh, all right. Hey, uh, one other thing. I've got to mention this. I think this is Robert Redford. What are we going to do without Robert Redford in Hollywood? At any rate, yesterday he just said, I'm going to hang it up. He's got a new movie coming out pretty soon. 82 years old. Um, but I guess was. Um, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, kid maybe the first time that uh, that we really heard of Robert Redford. Maybe that was his first greatest movie. Butch Cassidy. Yeah. Um, well, it, like we, we, Ray and I were just talking about this. Like you have to think about Robert Redford. Not like, he did a movie not that long ago where he was on a uh, uh, a ship that got lost at sea and and and, and uh, that got pretty well uh, reviewed. But also behind the scenes, he's a powerhouse, right? He still runs oh, uh, yeah. the Sundance yeah. Yeah. Film Festival, which a ton of movies have come out of. And he's been very hands-on with that for years. As an actor, yeah, he's taken a back seat for a while, but yeah. Right. But a real, a, a great, I've never never met him, but uh, I've always always admired him. And just uh, seeing him uh, just announced he's, uh, he's going to step down. 
at the nice age of 82. He's had a, it's he's, a good time to retire. He certainly had a good run. You know, as so we take a break, we've just got to say one thing. You can't, uh, about, uh, and, and hearts, our hearts out to our good friends out at WCPT and all the people in the Chicago area for the carnage of the weekend in Chicago. It is just, you know, you know the numbers out there better than I. I mean, it's 66, 66 people shot over the weekend, 12 lost their lives, 12 killed, zero arrests. And there are four areas of the city. I saw the mayor yesterday, and I saw the uh, the superintendent of police. Just bake. one of the reasons there's no arrest. You can't blame the police. Um, they made a lot of other arrests and took some guns away in other parts of the city. But in these four districts where these shootings occurred over the weekend, zero arrests. And they were pleading with people yesterday, if you know anything, please come to us and tell us what you know uh, they've got to, they've said they've got to break down this wall of silence. And boy, we can echo that request today. You know, um, the, the, they'll, they'll never, they'll never break through and get these people responsible for these, uh, senseless murders unless people are willing to, uh, uh, in, to be informants, to tell the police what they know. Here's the, the mayor yesterday, Mayor Rahm Emanuel saying what's happening in the city, even, even if it's just these four districts is totally unacceptable anywhere. What happened this weekend did not happen in every neighborhood in Chicago, but it is unacceptable to happen in any neighborhood of Chicago. And Eddie Johnson, the superintendent of police, saying, look, um, we've done what we can. But again, he was pleading on people to come forward about these latest shootings. Forty-six people were arrested for gun charges this weekend, and we seized 60 guns over the weekend, adding to the 5,600 guns that we've also seized so far this year. That's in other parts of the city. They're doing what they can, but in these four districts, it is just sort of out of control. And again, please, 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 the plea to the people of Chicago, um, come forward with the information that you have and break this wall of silence. We'll take a quick break from Think Progress. Rebecca Entralgo uh, joins us next with uh, next with lots more to talk about with the breaking news uh, and about a big uh, governor's race out in Kansas, among other things, with... Uh, a person who is uh, am as anti-immigrant as you can get and, of course, has Donald Trump's endorsement. The Bill Press Show, Tuesday, August 7th. Follow us on Twitter at BP Show. This is The Bill Press Show. And on a Tuesday, August 7th, here we are, The Bill Press Show. Good to have you with us. As we come to you live from our nation's capital, reach out to you uh, coast to coast with all the news of the day brought to you today by the American International Association of Sheet Metal Air, Rail, and Transportation Workers Unions, those five all united and forming the Smart Union. Uh, so under President uh, Joseph Sellers, the good men and women of the Smart Union giving a fair day's work for a fair day's pay. Find out more about their good work at smart-union.org. Joining us in studio from uh, the great Think Progress, Rebecca Entralgo, a good friend. Rebecca, it's nice to see you nice again. Nice to see you as well. With lots to talk about before mm-hmm. we uh, jump into it. Uh, we've been stirring things up for the last uh, half hour or so. Yes, indeed. A couple of comments on Twitter, at BP Show, at BP Show, about your explanation of how, you know, water works for Donald, <laughs> for Donald Trump. Phil says, we have a dumbass for a president, period. Uh, also got a couple of comments about Chicago from our buddy Romaine, who's in Chicago. He says, Rahm Emanuel is full of junk. Instead of people wanting Mr. Johnson uh, to resign, they should be pushing to get rid of Rahm. The fish rots at the head. And KG says, Chicago and other... 
alienated the public with their bad policing. A couple of comments there from Chicago. Also, don't forget, we have the chat room, youtube.com slash the Bill Press Show. YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Uh, Merle Ann says, two things you're dead serious about when you live in California, fires and earthquakes. Uh, Donnie's S isn't going to sit well with a lot of Californians. I can't say what she actually mm-hmm. is, but uh, isn't going to sit well with a lot of Californians. So find us one way or the other, either on Twitter at BP Show or in the chat room, YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Yeah, I would think when you lost your house to a wildfire in California, for the response of the President of the United States to say, you're just letting too much water run into the Pacific. (laughs) Yeah. I'm not sure that's... I think maybe it's an East Coast thing, because like you just don't understand what a, like a real wildfire is like and what damage that could do, or or an earthquake even. Like I, I was born and raised in Florida. I can't imagine what a wildfire is, and you know, I think maybe it's just he's been in like his New York bubble the whole time, and maybe he just doesn't understand, you know, the environmental effects of wildfires and what damage that does and the causes of that. Uh, you know, it's something that Californians are. Super. I think you're being much too kind to him. <laughs> I think I'm, I'm I mainly think defending he is myself. Bone ass dumb. <laughs> yeah, that's true. No, seriously. I mean, and you also know, and when you're that dumb, you just shut your mouth, it's and then true. people don't know how dumb you are. That's true. Yeah. Uh, at any rate, so <laughs> Rebecca, oh uh, gosh, where do we start? Uh, for, first, let's start with. You have been keeping track. We've lost track, and that's the problem with this news cycle. We talk about it all the time. There are big stories that we should be following and keeping on top of. Um, Jennifer Bendry, who was in from HuffPost yesterday, uh, talked about the dead cat theory, which is you know, we lose track of these big stories because then Donald Trump throws a dead cat on the table. <laughs> it's true. It's and true. And then we rush off and talk about the latest dumb tweet, yeah. right? Yeah. So one story that I think we have lost track of is these kids at the border. Yeah. This problem, pardon me, you've been keeping on top of this problem has not gone away. Yeah. What's What's the latest? Um, how are they doing in reuniting these kids with their families, and where do, where do we stand? Yeah, so the latest has been sort of the government sort of saying, you know, we're not responsible for reuniting these families. About four. I thought a judge told them they were. Well, the judge told them they were, but I don't think the government has actually taken any steps to help reunite these families, mainly the ones whose parents were deported uh, They and their child remains in the United States. So a lot of... Um, you know, a small percentage of these parents uh, were, uh, you know, voluntarily signed uh, a deportation release that basically said, you know, I don't want to be reunited with my child. It's a very small percentage. The other percentage, uh, you know, some attorneys believe that they were coerced into signing uh, paperwork that said, you know, if you sign this, uh, you know, you can be reunited with your child. And a lot of the times these, uh, you know, these documents are presented in English only. A lot of the time these families, uh, you know, can't read in English. And a lot of times they have maybe like five seconds to make the decision of whether, you know, I should go back to my dangerous situation in Guatemala or in Mexico or if I should, you know, sort of wait out my case in this detention center, which could take for a very long time. Um, and some of these families are reunited um, in they're being held in, in detention centers together. 
Um, so they are reunited. Uh, they're just at, you know, these huge detention centers together. So it's, it's kind of all over the place. But the main thing is, you know, even though the judge has said, you know, these children should be reunited um, and the government should take the responsibility for them, the government has sort of said, you know, the ACLU said it will do it. So why not just let the ACLU do it? They're working with nonprofits on the ground. Just let them do it. But, you know, it's it's they created this problem. <laughs> like, this yeah. isn't a law that existed at all. Like, this is something that they just pulled out of the blue. And we're like, you know what? We're just going to separate families so that we can deter other parents from coming here. No, it's a good reminder. I mean, this zero tolerance policy, right, was just pulled out of the sky by Jeff Sessions. Yeah. Uh, uh, of course, with Donald Trump's full approval mm-hmm. and announced. And they created the problem. And now they're refusing to solve it. How many kids are we talking about? Uh, Still in limbo, sort of? I believe it's around 500 children uh, who are sort of still in limbo, who have parents who have been deported, um, and, you know, there's they don't know where their parents are. Uh, the ACLU Do, doesn't know where their parents are, and neither does the government. I, I was just going to say, so the government separated these families from their parents from their kids, kids from their parents, I guess. Yep. And now they don't know where the kids are or where the parents are, or they couldn't put them back together if they wanted to. In no. the and and something I, I, when I was reading the court filing, the ACLU said that you know you know we're happy to help reunite these parents, but it really shouldn't be our responsibility. Like we're going to do it because we want these kids to be reunited, but you know it really isn't our responsibility. And they said a couple of times when they found parents. Um, in Mexico or in Guatemala, a lot of the times they were already in, they were already in connection with in contact with the government. So the government had already they know where some of these parents are. They just hadn't put any effort to reunite them yet. So it's a whole entire mess. Uh, it's ridiculous. and meantime, uh, what is the uh, new policy? Is are they still enforcing zero tolerance? Are they no. still separating? No, from- but it's. It's complicated. The zero tolerance policy, you know, he signed that executive order that revoked yeah. it. Um, so at the moment, I, I honestly don't know what the situation is at the border is like. There are some uh, parents who have been separated. Uh, I think there was one parent who said he was forcibly separated from his two year old um, after zero tolerance had been revoked. You know, revoked. So. You know, we really don't know. And that's why, you know, I've been trying to find these like stories that from local outlets to sort of help, you know, uh, uplift these, you know, stories, horrible stories that are coming out of these detention centers, um, because we really don't know until we have reporters at the border from the well, Texas the, Tribune and all that who yeah. you know, tell us these stories. And the other point you made, which is some of these uh, some of these families may have been reunited, mm-hmm. but they're reunited in prison. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean. Maybe yes. that's too harsh a word for yeah. a detention center, but yeah. uh, I'm, these detention centers mm-hmm. are not necessarily well, sometimes they're country the, clubs. Sometimes they're even our prisons. Like sometimes uh, deten- uh, detainees are held in uh, certain beds in a, in a prison. So um, yeah, it, and at one of the one of the detention centers, about 500 um, about 500 fathers and their childrens went on strike. They went on like a hunger strike. Um, they are being, they were reunited families who were held together at this detention center and they were like, you know, the conditions here are horrible. Like we don't, uh, and and in many cases they're like, we don't even want to stay here. Like the conditions here are so horrible that we have to wait here for our cases to be heard that we would just rather be back home. So I, and, and so like a lot of their, their cases are in legal limbo and it's just a giant mess. Like, and ICE is currently saying that, you know, the, the, the fathers aren't on strike. They're denying that a strike is even happening. Um, but we don't know that for sure. No one. I mean, we don't know what goes behind those, what goes on behind those walls. So it's 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 horrifying. All these stories of children who have been molested by youth care workers, and it's just, it's a, a nightmare. And the the hardest part about 
hearing those stories is in a lot of cases you go back and you see that DHS or HHS has, you know, dinged the prison or the facility for mistreating, you know, uh, migrants a couple of years ago. And it's like, well, why mm. hasn't this been fixed? Like they have a history of, of abuse and it's just ongoing and it's a giant mess. Uh, on the issue of immigration, as well as on the issue of uh, voting rights, um, nobody's been a bigger supporter of Donald Trump than uh, Chris Kobach, yeah. <laughs> Secretary of State from Kansas, now running for governor of yeah. Kansas, with the president's full support. Of course. Uh, yeah. He was on his uh, voter fraud panel. He was on the uh, transition he, he team. He sort of created the well, voter yeah, fraud. Yeah. He, I think <laughs> and, he chared it. Yeah, I think he, yeah. Yeah, that, that's correct. And he was uh, on the transition team advising him on immigration policies. Um, so, you know, that probably no. went over horribly. Uh. An extreme right winger, one would also say mm -hmm. a white nationalist. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Chris Kobach. Yeah. There was uh, uh, a couple of GOP establishment consultants had sort of leaked to the press that they knew three of his lower level campaign staff, people who knocked on doors and, and things like that, were associated with a splinter group of Identity Europa, which is like a campus based white nationalist group but they're like the, they're the breed of white nationalists that are like i'm not racist i am i'm from like an upper echelon of the european race and they're very like race-based haplogroup type of uh white nationalists uh and they were, were uh i'm not a, a racist i just think that white people are supreme <laughs> exactly they say it in supreme. so they say it in so many words um and yeah so a, a couple of his campaign staff members were uh, believed to be linked to those uh to those groups and and what has Kobach said about that they said that they're not a part of those groups they said that you know they're part of uh i believe they called it um it's not uh they said that they mistook they've uh the gop consultants have mistaken the group for the american heartland institute um, because the uh, the group name is American Her I think it's Heritage Institute or something like that, and they're like, no, you you got the acronym wrong. It's actually American Heartland Institute. But so it, it hasn't been like confirmed confirmed that these people were members of white nationalist groups. Um, but I mean, it wouldn't be surprising at all uh, if they were, given you know, it, it's not surprising why they would be attracted to a candidate like Chris Kobach, who is you know for years and years tried to m restrict access to the ballot and make sure that, you know, immigrants are, you know, spread the false, you know, narrative that undocumented immigrants are going to the polls, flooding to the polls to elect Democrats. He, no, he he is behind, he's the guy behind Donald Trump's claim mm -hmm. that he actually won the popular vote yep. because three to five million people yep. voted illegally, meaning illegal immigrants voted or undocumented workers voted illegally for Hillary Clinton. Yeah. That's, Chris, that, that's Chris Kobach, mm -hmm. and is zero evidence of mm -hmm. that. It's total BS. Nope. Remember that period of time that we were going to find out who those people were that voted? Oh, there yeah. was a whole oh, commission? Yeah. Mm -hmm. and yeah. They Bryce did, Kobach and they came back, it? and nothing was found. Nothing no. happened, <laughs> and they yeah. just got rid of it. Yeah. And, the, and the massive voter fraud, mm -hmm. the, the, again, uh, growing out of that, and they created this commission, put Kobach in charge of it, and they yeah. found zero mm -hmm. evidence of voter fraud, yeah. zero evidence of it. Uh but the latest thing, of course, Donald Trump hasn't given it up. Remember just last week he said at the rally in Tampa, this is why we need voter ID because yeah. there's so much voter fraud. Mm -hmm. And famously, what's the big deal with voter ID mm -hmm. or showing your ID when you vote? Because you have to show ID when you For buy groceries. Store, of course. 
I yes. always show my ID when I buy groceries. <laughs> to be fair, you always buy, you know, alcohol, so you have to show your <laughs> ID, right? We all do in this day and age. When was the last time you went grocery shopping? That's what we, I want to know. So we, we, we've, 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 we've we had this conversation. It? We had this well, conversation off air. And we're, I, we're convinced. We settled. <laughs> yeah. He has never, never. ever gone grocery never. shopping in, in his, his life. entire yeah. life. Not just yeah. for a long time. Like since he was a college student, no, even never. then he never no. went grocery shopping. Yeah, I you're, think that's right. Yeah, if you're born into that wealth, you have people who get groceries for you. When you're in college, I assume you probably don't get groceries. You probably, knowing him, he loves McDonald's. He probably ate out all the time. Totally. Um. So and you know when he built his whole business, Are no, you kidding? no way. He probably had a servant <laughs> in his dorm room. He's mm-hmm. never cooked. No. He's never cooked a meal. No. He's never gone shopping for groceries. Nope. Why would you when you have the taste palette of someone who enjoys like a well-done steak with ketchup? Like, right. Why would you go grocery shopping? Right. right. I wonder yeah. if he's ever driven a car. Hmm. A golf cart, yes. I'd say pr- at some point somewhere, even if it was just on one of his properties, yeah. he's probably driven s- yeah. somewhere because he damn sure didn't walk. <laughs> no. No. <laughs> you know what I mean? Absolutely not. <laughs> Well, uh, God forbid the Chris Kovac, Kovac. I have no idea how that uh, – Stephen Shepard from um, Politico joins us next. We'll ask him what the chances are that Kovac could become governor mm. of Kansas. The people of Kansas don't deserve uh, don't deserve I, that. I'd like to say the people of Kansas are smarter than that, but they elected Sam Brown back. So it's <laughs> like – I'm 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 concerned for the governor's race in Florida because Ron DeSantis, who's like a mini Trump, is like currently, you know, leading the way for the Republican nominee. And he's like a Chris Kobach, except just like like as dumb as Trump, because he just repeats. <laughs> Did you see that campaign ad he ran with his yes. child mm-hmm. where he was just like build the wall and like, oh, it was horrible. And I'm so concerned. For, I'm going down to Florida to cover the primary um, at the end of August. And I'm just I mean, he's going to be the nominee, I feel like. And I, I don't – who knows if he'll be governor, but it's so horrifying because he is like a Chris Kobach anti-immigrant person, but just is – for some reason just feels worse. But without the charm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, uh, thanks to you, I know something which I find very disturbing, um, but I'm glad you reported on it. And that is – so Charlottesville, as bad as it was, and the white supremacists there and, and ultra-nationalists, and, and they have their march, kill one poor woman in, in the protest, mm-hmm. uh, and Donald Trump says there are some very fine people right. there among these racists and right. not, not neo-Nazis and everyone. And then now they're actually, so what's the follow-up? They're coming to Washington, D.C. Yeah, they I'll- have a permit. Mm-hmm. A while ago they applied for a permit to have a rally on the National Mall. Uh, for Unite the Right 2, the second Unite the Right rally. Um, and it's the same person who organized the first one, Jason Kessler. He's a uh, uh, horrible white nationalist. There was that video of him at Charlottesville who he came out to make a press conference and he was just like chased out. And it was so funny to people. He just ran from like this group. Um, he's horrible. Yeah. And um, I mean, I, I, I realize that on the mall, like anybody can get a permit on the mall mm-hmm. if you apply. Yeah. But still, yeah. Mm-hmm. But they've got it. So they, they have they a legitimate do. permit, and it's, next and it's weekend, what this weekend, Saturday. Mm-hmm. Saturday. Yep. Good. I'm going to be at the beach. Good. I'm <laughs> glad I'm out of town. I would be tempted to go there and throw 
tomatoes, right? Sure. <laughs> or, or rotten eggs or something. Yeah. Well, I, I'm very uh, interested to see what happens. It's going to be a confluence of interesting people. But, yeah, unfortunately, it is happening here on Saturday. So, but the the controversy now surrounds not not, not the fact that they've got the permit because right. again, sort of that's that's the national mall. So, mm-hmm. uh, other other um, groups that we we don't necessarily support have had permits to have rallies right. there. Uh, and then, the question is, how are they going to get there? Right. Right. And this is where it gets really mm-hmm. rough. Right. So the DC Metro is mm-hmm. going to provide. Talking well, they, about providing special trains just for them. Right. Why? So this, uh, shortly after I wrote this, Metro kind of backtracked and said, we're not going to, we're not considering this anymore. But there was a, a period of time where, and I think honestly, it's because the word got out there because uh, Metro's largest union leaked the plans to the press. Um, leaked the plans mm-hmm. that Metro was considering separate running trains, special running trains, separate trains just for the white nationalists. Right, and I believe the – and they actually leaked – and this is actually very a, a good uh, job on the part of the Metro uh, Metro Union. They leaked the exact stops that the that they were planning on getting on and getting <laughs> off at. So I believe they were getting on at uh, East Falls Church, and they were getting off at Foggy Bottom – and then going to take a police escort <laughs> oh, yeah. from Foggy po- Bottom to the mall. A police escort. Of course, you would mm-hmm. give these people, yeah, right, right, these racist mm-hmm. Nazis a police escort. Yep, right? and, and they were planning on giving... Uh, I, if you, I know that stuff very, very well. What they should have done is just <laughs> let them walk. That, that's in the heart of the campus of George Washington University. Yeah. Yeah. So let them get off of that metro stop and Let's walk through the campus <laughs> on their way to the mall and see what happens. Yeah, but, Good but luck. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Metro was considering, you know, designating certain train cars for these people to get from Virginia to the mall um, and, you know, get that nice uh, police escort. And so when uh, Metro's union found out about this, the largest unions, 80 percent people of color, and they came out with a very strong statement saying, you know, these are the same people who, you know, you know, support the Ku Klux Klan, people who, you know, in uh, who mistreated, you know, members of my family poorly and have very you know, a lot of hatred in their heart for me for just being who I am, and we're not just going to we're, we refuse to provide service to them. Um, and I believe the plan was proposed by Ward Two Commissioner Jack Evans, who represents I believe it's Georgetown, and uh, but he he's also oversees the the metro. Yeah, he's on yeah. the metro board. So right. I, I so I believe and and their response their defense of it was well we don't we want to minimize as much violence as possible. Um, so we want to, you know, keep these two groups separate and, you know, make sure they get to their destination. They were uh, they were afraid, if you, if you believe their rationale, right, that mm-hmm. there would be violence maybe even on the train between mm-hmm. the right. neo-Nazis and the protest, counter-protesters. Right. 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 Yeah, so. and, but it, it's just insane when you see it, when you put it on a paper that you're wanting to protect these a group of people who actually who killed someone at the last rally yeah. last year and you want to protect them from any violence that could be done to them and it's just it's very it's ridiculous <laughs> but um but yeah so metro has said they're they're uh they're not considering that option anymore but i i truly believe it's because the union came out and leaked the plans otherwise i think you know no one was really thinking about how these people were going to get to to you know, to the mall. So I, I um, but uh, 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 so far as I know, mm-hmm. right? And I've been to a lot of rallies on the mall, mm-hmm. and um, you know, through inauguration and mm-hmm. and other things, and the metro is get, get really, really, really packed. Yeah. Right? 
I, I never heard before of any group, mm -hmm. any group for mm -hmm. any rally, any cause yeah. or any event whatsoever having special trains yeah. just for the people. You don't have special trains for people going to the ball games. No. Mm -hmm. uh, now, the train may be packed with people <laughs> going to the ball game, but yeah. other people are allowed on that car. I mean, it just so happens at that time of day, yeah. right? Uh, so this, this, this idea is just, uh, is just insane. I have another alternative. Mm -hmm. You know, so to get from Falls Church to Foggy Bottom, mm -hmm. uh, the Orange Line, it yeah. is, you have to go under the river. That's mm -hmm. a long tunnel, yep. right? Yep. So the alternative would be for the driver just to get that train right in the middle of the river, mm -hmm. under the river, <laughs> uh -huh. and just run out of gas. <laughs> <laughs> that is quite the plan. And leave them stuck in that <sighs> tunnel for a couple of hours. That would Yeesh. be that would be my and they just they just happen to miss the rally. That would be that would be my plan. Uh, just just the a backup, coincidence. The backup plan, Ugh. right, indeed. Hey, thanks for staying on top of all this Thank stuff, Rebecca. You. Thanks for coming in on a uh, summer morning here. Uh, it's not raining at the moment no. at any rate. Uh, you can follow Rebecca and her good colleagues at Think Progress at thinkprogress.org. Yes, the Chris Kobach race in Kansas, the race in Florida, a lot of other important races we'll catch up on with Stephen Shepard from Politico coming up next. Stay with us. We'll be right back. This is the Bill Press Show. Hey, friends, don't be a stranger. Keep up to date with all of the Bill Press Show happenings around the clock on social media. Here's how. You can follow us on Twitter at BP Show or on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash Bill Press Show and on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. And remember, if you haven't already done so, make sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. And while you're there, please rate and review the show. That means a lot to us. And thanks so much for your support. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show, live at YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. He stole for Paul Manafort, and he stole from Paul Manafort. Uh, that's the testimony of Rick Gates yesterday. Bombshell testimony in the Paul Manafort trial in Alexandria, Virginia. Hello, everybody. What do you say? It's Tuesday, August 7. So good to see you today. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for being part of the program. As we come to you live from our nation's capital and reaching out to you all across this great land of ours online, on the radio, and on television with the news of the day and your chance to comment on the news of the day. A lot of breaking news. Uh, yes, the Paul Manafort trial yesterday exploding with the testimony of his deputy, Rick Gates, who was, don't forget, the deputy campaign manager for the Donald Trump campaign when a lot of these crimes that Rick Gates admitted to yesterday uh, were committed. Uh, the president, in a pissing contest uh, with uh, the Koch brothers, of all people, and the head of the Republican National Committee telling Republican donors, don't you give one dime to the Koch brothers because uh, they don't do the right thing. Give all your money to the RNC, no money to the Koch brothers. A little civil war among Republicans, particularly Republican donors, 
Facebook, YouTube, and Apple have said Alex Jones no longer welcome on our platform, and Donald Trump still attacking California with the wildfires, not willing or reaching out to help Californians caught in those terrible wildfires. We'll bring you up to date on the news. Look forward to hearing from you, uh, your comments on the news on Twitter, at BP Show. We'll get right to it. But first, this is the Full Court Press. Yes, indeed. Just a couple of other stories making news here on a Tuesday morning. So in Japan, they feel like they have a problem with work-life balance. They think that people are working too long, working too many hours. In Japan? In Japan. And yesterday... I think we're working too hard here. I think we're working too hard everywhere, yeah. But yesterday, Japan's government actually came out and urged companies to give employees... Monday mornings off. Now, this is similar to a plan that they experimented with a couple of years ago. They said that they urged companies to let employees have Friday afternoons off. In other words, you come in on Friday morning, do a little bit of work, and then you leave and you go home and you have a little bit of a longer weekend. They're experimenting to try and have this happen on the other end of the weekend, Monday mornings. In addition to Friday. Well, they're saying you can do both or either. Both. And I, I think both. But here's the problem. The government is just recommending this and urging companies to do it. But so far, the companies have not been doing a very good job of allowing employees to do that. Shock of all shocks. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like the company doesn't care. But it's, a, it's an interesting idea. It would be uh, exciting to see if other countries try and uh, copy that. Get down to three days a week. I love it. Going. Yeah, just keep on going. Keep on going. By the way, uh, you remember not that long ago, the FCC reported there was a major hack, a huge breach inside the FCC. That's what we yeah. were told. Yeah. Well, they had to come clean yesterday. They had to admit we were never hacked. They never got hacked. They made it up. They had an inspector general look at this thing to find out where the flaws were, where the security problem was. How can they fix it? Where'd how the re- can they be? Where did the original report come from? Well, Ajit Pai, the chairman of the FCC, blamed the former chief information officer and the Obama administration for providing, quote, inaccurate information about this incident to me, my office, Congress, and the American people. So he has, he's the one that actually talked about it. Uh, And they just sort of covered it up and tried to lie about it for over a year. And they yesterday, finally, after someone tried to find out where the flaws were, they had to come out and say, yeah, it never happened. Is that crazy? The FCC. Like, this was a big story when it happened. Yeah, but look, the White House, the Pentagon, everybody else has been hacked. It's it's easy to believe that one more government agency. Sure. Look at all the companies, right? Sure. That, that were hacked. Right? Yeah. So, all right. This is the Bill Press Show. Yes, he lied, or he stole for Paul Manafort, and he stole from Paul Manafort. That's what Rick Gates told the judge yesterday and the jury in the Paul Manafort trial in Alexandria, Virginia. Getting serious, folks. Uh, Criminal activity, crimes committed, yes, and admitted to by the uh, chief witness for... uh, in the Robert uh, the, the Paul Manafort trial, chief witness for special counsel Robert Mueller. Good to see you today. Happy Tuesday, uh, August 7. 
The Bill Press Show, live from our nation's capital, reaching you all across this great land of ours. Wherever you are, we are there with you online, on television, and on the radio, the great WCPT out in the Chicago area. And we welcome to the studio. This is a big day for elections around the country. Uh, nobody follows it better or is more on top of it than Stephen Shepard from Politico, their uh, editor and reporter of all their political news. Stephen, good to see you. Good to be here. Uh, in your casual summer outfit. We like that. I'm yes. definitely not going to play golf after we talk Oh, uh, it looks here. So you could me. <laughs> it's going to be a late night tonight. So uh, You are heading to... right to Bedminster, New Jersey. Let's play. <laughs> uh, it's far, far uh, less luxurious, <laughs> but uh, get out a little bit before we... Uh, of Before course. we have a late election night tonight. Yeah, indeed. What are you looking at tonight? What are the big ones you'll be following? Well, the first polls close at 7.30 in Ohio. The Ohio, Ohio 12, 12 huh? special election yeah. coming right down to the wire. A race, a, a district that really shouldn't even be close. It's it's perpetually Republican district. Uh, President Trump carried it by 11 percentage points uh, this past, uh, in 2016. A place when Pat Tiberi announced he was going to resign. We said, well, that's a pretty solidly Republican district. Well, I feel like we've been down this path before. Democrats have only been able to swipe one of them, but they've all been close. Yeah, Kansas 4 was close. Montana at large was close. Georgia 6, where there was a ton of money spent, was close. South Carolina, uh, that that district was close. The the Mulvaney district, uh, South Carolina 5. This yeah. is, we, we've been talking about this now for a year and a half. Mm -hmm. All these people who've either resigned or or left to go join the Trump administration, opening up these districts that Republicans didn't think they were going to have to sweat to, to carry. Uh, they've not only had to sweat, but they've actually lost one. And we uh, could be looking at another loss tonight. Uh, the Pennsylvania's the loss? Pennsylvania's the loss. Right. And Alabama, if you count the Senate. Right, if you count course. the Senate, Alabama, yeah. Uh, Jeff Alabama Sessions' lost, Senate seat. Yes. Which everybody thought was a safe seat, too. Exactly. Donald Trump tweeting uh, about an hour ago. Ohio, vote today for Troy Balderson for Congress. His opponent, controlled by Nancy Pelosi, is weak on crime. The border military vets your Second Amendment and will end your tax cuts. Troy will be a great congressman. So he's all in for Troy Balderson, not wanting to face another embarrassing loss. That That's exactly right. And look, these two candidates, Troy Balderson and the Democrat, Danny O'Connor, are going to run against each other in three months again. For the full term, this would only take you through the end of the year, this, mm. this special election tonight. Um, so it, this is really kind of all about the narrative, all about uh, uh, what kind of message it would send if a Democrat were to win in this district about Republicans' chances of keeping the House, which honestly, if Danny O'Connor wins tonight, you might see some, some maybe retrenchment uh, from Senate Republicans telling donors, telling uh, 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 strategists, hey, this is where we need to focus on keeping our majority because the House, that might be gone. Um, right. That said, if, if Troy Balderson wins by five points or so or, or greater, then I think you're going to look at uh, renewed Republican optimism about keeping the House and and maybe thinking that the Senate is safe and, and we actually have a shot to keep the House. The latest poll that I saw was 44-43. Is that yeah, what do you show? Private, private and public polling essentially at this point shows a jump ball. Uh, over the past month, O'Connor, who was down by five or ten points, has closed to you know anywhere from uh, uh, really the low single digits on either side. So this is this is really going into it, at least from from what we hear from the campaigns and, and the parties, and what we see in the public data. 
uh, essentially a coin toss. What is um, wh- where's Danny O'Connor on the political spectrum among Democrats? Is he on the Connor Lamb or the Alexandria Ocasio Cortez <laughs> side? Probably of it? more on the Connor Lamb side of it. Um, look, you're going to hear Democrats of all stripes this election. They're going to talk a lot about health care. They're going to talk now. They may not talk about it in the same way. Some may talk about single payer. Some may talk about uh, some of the Republican proposals and, and stopping them. Uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You're going, but you're going to hear a lot of the same issue set. He's more on the Connor Lamb side. He has talked about how, uh, when it comes down to coming here, healthcare is a big issue for him. He's been talking about healthcare is yeah. a, a huge issue for him. It's the number one issue really in Democratic advertising. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, he does not support. There are two different kinds of Democrats who say that they want new leadership when it comes to uh, the first vote they're going to have to take in the new Congress. Uh, obviously, it's the election in November that will determine who yeah. gets to take that vote in the new Congress. But uh, he's talked about not supporting Nancy Pelosi. Again, there are two different kinds of Democrats who are going to say that, both on the right and on the left. Uh, he comes at it from probably the more moderate side, uh, the more Connor Lamb side of things. But look, it, to me, this is less about where he falls necessarily and more about what, what we're looking at tonight, what this tells us about the overall battle for the House. And, you know, I'm fascinated. This is going to be our last special election until November. It's really going to be kind of the, the last test, the last real reading we get um, from voters outside of polling. And we, you know, we know that that can be uh, that can be volatile. Right. What are the races then t- today? Uh, so we also have primaries, primaries in right. Kansas, yeah. in Michigan, in Missouri, and in Washington State. Okay, Kansas uh, is getting a lot of attention because the president is all in with, uh, f- with for Chris Kobach, Secretary of State, who was head of his voter fraud commission, has been a big advisor on immigration issues and on so-called voter fraud issues. Uh, a, a Republican primary, Republican primary for governor, right? Running against the sitting governor. Jeff Collier, who only became, he was the lieutenant governor, he became governor when Sam Brownback uh, mm. got that State Department post. Sam Brownback, mm-hmm. wildly unpopular right. in Kansas. Um, Republicans have kind of been fighting him over the past couple of years to rein in some of his uh, uh, really steep tax cuts and reduction in, reductions in government spending and, and government shortfalls that resulted from that. Uh, they've been trying to move the state in a more moderate direction. Well, here you kind of have that playing out again in the gubernatorial primary from someone like Chris Kobach, who says, we need change because Sam Brownback and his administration was unpopular, but right. I want to take things even further. Right. And that's going to be a tough sell, even in a state as Republican as Kansas in the general election. And that's why Republicans were begging President Trump not to endorse Chris Kobach in this primary. Right. And where, where do they, what do you show in the polls there? Is it close or is Collier... Is is Brownback sort of an anchor around Collier's neck? Well, that's the problem. If Jeff the way, Collier, wants I was thinking of New Jersey, the woman who ran in New Jersey, who was Chris. I mean, Chris Christie's lieutenant governor could not shake Kim Guadagno. Yeah, yeah. Th- this is one of the the issues with with Jeff Collier, who wants to occupy that moderate lane in the primary, but has those associations from being Sam Brownback's running mate and lieutenant governor. And it, it's been difficult for him to shake Jim Barnett, who you may remember from two thousand six lost to Kathleen Sebelius. He was a Republican mm-hmm. nominee. He's running again as an unabashed moderate. And he said, don't, Jeff Collier's oh. not the moderate. He's Sam oh. Brownback. Yeah. And Chris Kobach, you know what he is. I'm the moderate. And so if Jim Barnett gets 10, 15, 20% of the vote tonight, that makes Jeff Collier's path a lot harder. 
and one of the reasons why Chris Kobach might be the favorite going in. The polling is kind of a little all over the place and sparse, so yeah. it, it's not quite certain where that race stands. Uh, Democrats have a candidate? Democrats, they have a candidate, or likely will have a candidate, State Senator Laura Kelly is the favorite in tonight's primary. They also have candidates for two House contests, hmm. um, one of whom they'll pick tonight. The other one, Paul Davis, actually lost to Brownback and narrowly lost to Brownback in 2014. He's running in the second district, which is held by uh, retiring longtime member Lynn Jenkins. Uh, that's a Democratic pickup opportunity. Republicans will pick their nominee tonight. Democrats are also targeting the third district, uh, kind of the well-to-do Kansas City suburbs. Uh, Kevin Yoder, the, the sitting member there, that's a place that Hillary Clinton won by a point mm -hmm. in 2016 after Barack Obama lost it by 10 or 11 four years earlier. It's a place Democrats look at as a big opportunity. They're going to pick their nominee tonight. Um, you mentioned Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. She, she campaigned with Bernie Sanders. Right, right. Uh, Is that um, that district they campaigned in? I knew they yes, were in a Kansas. They were in a couple. They were in two different Kansas districts. Yeah, right. Um, their candidate, Brent Welder, worked for the Sanders campaign in 2016. Uh, he's the most liberal of, of the candidates there. Republicans think they can use that to their advantage. Uh, the initial polling, though, doesn't show a big difference between any of the three Democratic members um, and, and where they stand uh, against Yoder. So let's see where what happens tonight. But that could be one of those data points where uh, we look at on Election Day. Can these more liberal candidates win in what has traditionally been? I mean, the Kansas City suburbs, Johnson County, this is, you know, moderate Republican Bob Dole, Nancy Kassebaum, Dwight right. Eisenhower territory. Yeah. Uh, can long those, time red districts. Yeah. Can yeah. those can can a really liberal candidate win in the Trump era in, in places like that? Uh, and then you mentioned Michigan because the Michigan primary, that's one place also where Bernie Sanders has been. Yes. Uh, to, and endorsed this who would be the first Muslim governor. Mm -hmm. uh, I forget. His, Alex. Abdul El Sayed. Yeah. Abdul El Sayed. He's a, a physician. Uh, it's a three-way Democratic primary for governor in Michigan. Yes, um, the establishment favorite is is a former state senator, Gretchen Whitmer. Um, there's El Sayed, and then there's a a self-funding sort of self-aggrandizing, uh, kind of the bizarro world, Donald Trump, mm. uh, Sri Thandahar, who's uh, uh, spent a lot a lot of his own money on television ads, but is kind of flashy. A lot of Democrats say that he doesn't have a lot of substance, doesn't necessarily. Um, talk about uh, the issues in, in a way that, that... But running as a Democrat. Running as a Democrat. Um, he was in second place until recently, but the thought has been that some of the attention that El Saeed's candidacy has gotten in recent days, including Bernie Sanders' this, this past mm -hmm. weekend, uh, may be surging him into second place and, and, and with a shot at, at Gretchen Whitmer. Um, we haven't had a reliable poll there in a couple of weeks. Uh, the primary is today, so no one really knows what's going to happen there. Um, but it's a place where Democrats think after eight years of Rick Snyder, um, Bill Schuette mm -hmm. is the state attorney general. He's the likely Republican nominee. He has the full support and has been a big supporter of President Trump. This is a state Trump only carried, carried narrowly, as we've seen in some of these other upper Midwestern states. We, the, the thought is, when you look at the polling, that they've kind of snapped back toward Democrats in the last year and a half. And this is a place that, that maybe uh, Democrats have an opportunity here uh, to recapture the governorship. Steve Shepard with us here from politicopolitico.com. So, you know, the, the, looking back last year, the president didn't have a lot of success in Virginia or in New Jersey or in Alabama. Um, but this year, I mean, despite that, he is all in, right? He has said, and he's going to be 
giving the rallies maybe five days a week. I mean, he loves those <laughs> rallies, right? They're more Trump rallies than yes. But he almost they're, they're he, organized by his presidential campaign, right? Mm-hmm. Right. And I mean, he, he he almost ignores the candidate that he's supposedly there to endorse, right? But at any rate, he's out there on the road. Uh, are, how do Republicans react to that? You know, John Kasich famously said that Troy Balderson didn't invite Trump to come to Ohio. Trump just said, I'm I'm coming, right? So do Republicans see Trump as a help or a hurt? I think the answer is both. I think that uh, for a Republican, say, like Troy Balderson in a district that, that Trump carried by 11 points, that where the polling most of the polling have showed voters split evenly in his job performance, you know, 47. Four, I think that Monmouth poll was 47 percent approved, 49 percent disapprove. Uh-huh. Um, he hurts with independence, but you need those Republican base voters who, like we saw during the Obama years, when your party's in power, you're maybe less motivated to come turn out. You need those people. If they don't show up, you can't win. Um, so you'd rather try to win a higher turnout two point race than you know, lose by five because your voters don't show up. Uh, so it, it's a gamble. Um, a lot of folks who are running in districts that Hillary Clinton carried might not be willing to take that gamble. But in some of these but other... But they may not have a choice if he, if he says I'm well, coming. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, it is hard to imagine him doing a rally, say, uh, in... in um, Tyson's Corner for Barbara Comstock, mm-hmm. you know, that's not a play, that's not something that she would want running in a district that Hillary Clinton carried by double digits here in Northern Virginia. Um, but you're right. He, he could just show up. Um, I, I tend to think five or six days a week on the campaign trail is not necessarily what uh, American people expect from their president when it's not the president yeah, who's running. on the ballot. Um, you know, that's not we haven't seen president's campaign and midterm elections to that extent. And, and I think that's a bit of exaggeration and hyperbole on his part. Yeah. Um, but oh. it will be interesting to see where they deploy him. I think the best use of him would be in some of these red states where we have uh, Democrat Senate Democrats running for reelection, whether it's West Virginia with Joe Manchin, Montana with John Tester, Indiana with Joe Donnelly, Missouri mm-hmm. with Claire McCaskill, North Dakota with Heidi Heitkamp. Uh, those are places where he'd probably be more more useful than in the House battleground. But one of the important things you said, I think, is that the the impact that he could have is to, is to get the Republican base out because um, they might, well, midterms, right? People yeah. tend to stay home. And also because so much of the energy, do you agree that it seems that so much of the energy and the momentum is on the Democratic side? Absolutely. Democrats are telling pollsters that they're way more enthusiastic about voting this year than they have been in years past, whereas Republicans aren't necessarily saying that. Uh, Republicans, though, have traditionally enjoyed that advantage in midterm elections. So this kind of uh, negates that advantage when you have this increased Democratic enthusiasm. I think this is the lesson. You could draw a couple of different lessons from Pennsylvania. One, you could draw the lesson that a Democrat won a district Donald Trump carried by 20 points. That's probably the lesson I would draw. The lesson I think the president draws is that he saw polling in the final days of the campaign where Rick Saccone was down by five points. And he went there. And Rick Saccone lost by, what, two or three? Well, he got some of the vote out. And he yeah. says, if I could, you know, if I could go do that in other parts of the country, get my people excited about voting for these other candidates who are not me, who don't motivate them like I do, uh, then then that's a good use of, uh, of my right. resources. But instead of rather taking the lesson, hey, maybe I need to lie low a little bit and so that these Republicans, even running in, in solidly Republican districts like that, 
they're not saddled by a president with a 40 to 43 percent approval rating. And the Democrats are saying we have a lot of opportunities here uh, if we can just get our people out to vote. The people who normally would not vote in midterms, as you say, historically, um, the um, younger and older, whatever. And I think younger and minority people maybe just don't go out to vote in midterms. And that's part of the amount to vote. We can pick up a lot of seats. Yeah. And that's part of the debate, say, in Michigan in that gubernatorial primary today is who's going to excite some of those drop-off voters right. who vote in presidential elections but don't vote in midterms? Is it going to be Gretchen Whitmer, the establishment um, Democratic choice, or is it going to be someone whose, whose candidacy has a history-making element to it, like Abdul El-Sayed? Uh, that's part of the debate that the party's having internally right now. Um, you can make arguments on both sides, and, and, right. and you know ultimately, I think we're going to have a couple of different test cases across the country of candidates from both camps, and we'll be able to kind of sit back in November and December and, and talk about how that debate went. So one of the places where Donald Trump decided, I'm going to get involved in a primary, we mentioned uh, Kansas and Chris Kobach, another place is Florida mm-hmm. on behalf of Ron DeSantis, where Florida's primary is what, September? It's August 28th. August 28th. So we haven't seen the results yet, but it appears that he's really pro- propelled DeSantis above the establishment frontrunner in the Republican primary. Yeah, that's state uh, agriculture commissioner uh, Adam Putnam. Adam yes, Putnam. I absolutely agree. Uh, the You look at the polling, it's clear that Ron DeSantis has surged ahead of Putnam. Putnam has been a statewide elected official for eight years. He was a yeah. former congressman who moved back to Florida because he thought that the better path to the governorship was likely through holding state office. Um that has traditionally worked well. Um, and and here's the other thing. Other House Republicans who've tried to run for promotions have fallen short. We saw that mm-hmm. just this past week with Diane Black in the Tennessee primary for governor. She finished third. She started as the favorite there. Uh, being in Congress has not been helpful to Republicans. But you know what's more helpful than being in Congress? Being on Fox News all the time and getting oh, right. the president's and earning the president's admiration that, for that, that, saying that was... nice things about him. And that has worked for DeSantis, who was first endorsed by Trump late last year, and Trump has kept endorsing him, traveled to Tampa to campaign with him, and it's it seems that there are still three weeks to go, but it does seem like uh, he's the overwhelming odds-on favorite now. Uh, so in his case, he's saying, you know, they're both Republicans, but he's more my kind of Republican than, than Putnam. Adam Putnam. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and um, <laughs> this... We talked about this just a little bit earlier. What I find so amusing these days is within the re- so there's this there, there's tension in the Democratic Party between the establishment and the progressives. We've seen that. There's also tension in the Republican parties. We've just talked about between some of the Trumpers, if you will, and some of the more establishment Republicans. And then there's this feud that's erupted between the Koch brothers and the president and the RNC, where the chair of the RNC last week told Republican donors, "Do not give any money to the Koch brothers." Yeah, which is. Have you seen anything like this? It's it's difficult to find parallels. I mean, we've only been kind of living in this big money. I mean, yeah, money's always right. been an, a, a big deal in politics, but um, kind of in the post Citizens United world, it's taken right. on a, a life of its own. Um, I, I think they were always the, the alliance was always a little tenuous, if, if nothing else, than sort of mechanically. You had the Koch brothers and the RNC who've built side by side these s- separate data operations um, yep. designed to, to fuel Republican voter models and and Republican campaigns 
Koch brothers looked at, you know, they looked at it not only as a, as a resource that they could provide to campaigns, but it's also something that they could make money off of, uh, that the Koch network mm-hmm. could could monetize. Um, right. And they've always kind of built these things, and there's always been that rivalry there. And I think that's one of the reasons why now that they have some kind of sharp policy disagreements, main, mainly over trade uh, and immigration, but but trade to probably a greater degree, that that's what's kind of brought this out again. Um, it's easy for there to be these battle lines drawn because they already have a rivalry when it comes to how they work with Republican political campaigns that now that there's a policy element to that, they, they can have this kind of standoff um, because they have something over which to stand off. Yeah. Uh, I just find that this the civil war in, in, inside the Republican Party very amusing to watch from the sidelines <laughs> at any rate. Um, uh, I don't know whether you're a betting man or not, but if you were, uh, on the scale of uh, 1 to 10, where would you put the chances of Democrats taking back the House? I'm going to get myself in trouble here. I think uh, right now it's— Off the record. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's how this works, right, yeah. with the cameras right. and the microphones? Yeah. Um, I, it's probably between 6 and 7 at this point. Um, you know, we'll know a lot more tonight. Look, yeah. Troy Balderson wins by two or three. I'm probably not going to change that number. Right. If he wins by more, then I think that number goes down. And if, if mm-hmm. Danny O'Connor wins, then I think that number maybe goes up a little bit. Um, right. I think, you know, it's difficult to look at the data and look at the battlefield and say that, that Democrats aren't a slight favorite at this point. But A, there's three months left to go. Right. And B, I don't think the data is totally conclusive. So, uh, I, yeah, I, that's well, kind of where I would no, put and the last it. But that's also, those are also the chances, if you asked me the day before Election Day in 2016, that I would have put a Hillary Clinton victory. Right. So I think that, you know, we're we're right. we're kind of in that area. I, I saw a Democrat say yesterday that going into this this special election, I haven't felt this good since right before the 2016 election. And, and I think <laughs> there's yeah. something cryptic about that, but it's, yeah. but it's true. And I think that's a, a fair representation of the probability right, right. now. And the last thing the Democrats need is to get overconfident and say, oh, well, you know, we got it. We got the House locked. Now we just have to work on the Senate or something like that. Right. So let's talk about the Senate. Uh, I imagine you would not put it at a six or no, seven. No, <laughs> it's that that's would probably you even put it at a five. No, I wouldn't. I think Republicans are, are pretty solid favorite. To, I would say Republicans and, chances of maintaining the Senate are better than Democrats chances of flipping the House. Uh-huh. Um, it's just so difficult. We'll know a little bit more um, on August. In addition to the Florida primaries on August 28th, we have the Arizona primaries. There's that three-way Senate primary for Jeff Flake's seat between Martha McSally, right. Kelly Ward, and Joe mm-hmm. Arpaio. Obviously, if Kelly Ward were to win that nomination, Democrats are pretty confident that Kirsten Cinema mm-hmm. would have a, a, a good path to winning that seat. Against Martha McSally, that's going to be a really tough race. Um, Democrats need to net two seats. Right. They are probably slight favorites in Nevada against Dean Heller. It's probably a coin flip against Martha McSally, better odds against Kelly Ward in Arizona. And Phil Bredesen is competitive in Tennessee. Uh, It's Tennessee, though, is is a more Republican state than Nevada or Arizona. So that's a kind of tougher path. So he is a great uh, uh, kind of profile and good poll numbers. Right. That's kind of a wait and see. So the two pickups would have to come from, most likely come from, uh, the three Nevada, Nevada, Arizona, and Tennessee. Okay, right. That means holding on to all five of the red states that you mentioned There's earlier. There's ten states that Donald Trump carried, five of right. which he carried five by of, double digits. Okay. So I mentioned them earlier. And of those five, which do you think is the most vulnerable? Probably North Dakota. Um, 
With Heidi Heitkamp. With Heidi Heitkamp. Indiana is is probably second there with Joe Donnelly. And even once we get through that list with Missouri, I would put third with, with Claire McCaskill. Um, Mansion and Tester are in a little better shape. But then you also have Florida where Rick Scott is going to spend tens of millions, if not $100 million of his, uh, both of his own money and, and money he's raising from outside donors. Um, that is, Florida is a coin flip state. It always is a coin flip state. Uh, he's Rick Scott won two governor's races by less than a point. Never got fifty percent, but he won. And uh, even in good Republican years, these are this is not going to be a good Republican year. I think it's pretty clear. But I think it's a race that's going to come down to the wire. So Democrats would have to win two of the pickup opportunities and hold every hold. other seat, right? Just to just to get a fifty-one forty-nine majority. That's it's a tightrope. Last week, former President Barack Obama put out his list of endorsements mm-hmm. for 81 candidates mm-hmm. uh, for everything from the Senate to Congress to governor to state legislature, state legislative races, which I thought was interesting. What impact will they have, and can we expect him to do anything beyond publishing a list? It wouldn't surprise me to see him on the road uh, in a limited capacity. Um, you. The one Senate not, race. Not five days a week. Not five days a week. And the one Senate race he endorsed in was Nevada. Um, he didn't endorse any of the sitting incumbents in, in some of these other races. That's obviously deliberate. It's places where his endorsement wouldn't be that helpful. Uh, but for Jackie Rosen in Nevada running against Dean Heller, it is. Uh, you mentioned those state legislative seats. Obviously, that's a big priority uh, for him and for his former attorney general, Eric Holder, who have started this group designed to get Democrats a seat at the table when it comes to redistricting after the 2020 census. Well, a big part of that is winning back governorships and state legislatures this year. And and that's a that's a big priority for Democrats because Republicans have a monopoly in so many states. Uh, We've seen the advantage that they've been able to build in for themselves, having control of so many of the maps uh, that were drawn Mm -hmm. after 2010. That's been one of the big impediments that until this year has made a Democratic takeover of the House, uh, pretty unlikely. So let's see, you know, uh, that's one of the things that the day after Election Day, when everybody's focused on the House and the Senate, I'll be looking at those state legislatures to see which ones may have flipped. All right. You got a big night ahead of you. Uh, So go home and take a nap, Uh, Steve Shepard. But thanks for coming in today at Politico.com. Meanwhile, he may be on vacay, but Donald Trump has not stopped tweeting. Uh, Justin Singh coming along, covers the White House for Bloomberg. Tell us all about it. We'll catch up with him. And uh, thank you, Stephen. Good to see you. Quick break. We'll be right back. Download our podcast. Search for The Bill Press Show on iTunes. And remember to rate, review, and subscribe. This is The Bill Press Show. Here we go on this Thursday, uh, August 7, uh, The Bill Press Show. Uh, wrapping up here with the news of the day. Live from uh, the capital of the free world, Washington, D.C., And our studio on Capitol Hill brought to you today, where we're brought to you today by the International Association of Iron Workers, great men and women of the Iron Workers Union under President uh, uh, Eric Dean. They are building our communities today and ready to rebuild America's infrastructure tomorrow. Check out their good work at ironworkers.org. President uh, Trump, uh, a little 10-day break up at Bedminster, New Jersey. But that doesn't mean uh, he is uh, giving up his iPhone or his tweets. He's been tweeting like mad already this morning. 
Trying to keep up with it all, uh, Justin Sink from Covers the White House for Bloomberg joining us in studio. Justin, it's always good to see you. Thanks hey, for coming in. Hey, to see you. Thanks for having me. One thing we haven't talked about yet is that at midnight last night, the uh, sanctions for Iran, which had temporarily been suspended um, while the Iran nuclear deal was in place, uh, kicked back in last night. So at a, a week after the president said, I'd be glad to sit down with the president of <laughs> Iran and meet with him. So kind of mixed messages here. What's going on? Yeah, I mean, I think that this is the implementation of the policy that that President Trump's, I mean, to his to his credit, has talked about for a long time as something that he wants to do, which is he didn't see the value in the Iran nuclear deal. Uh, you know, critics of the president or supporters of former President Obama would point out that, by all indications, it was working. It was halting um, Iran's uh, nuclear program, albeit at uh, a significant financial cost. Um, but Donald Trump said, you know, I don't like the terms of this deal, and so I'm going to rip it up and try to force a renegotiation. It's actually, you know, a, a technique that he's kind of employed across the board. When you look at trade deals, he wants something else, so he's going to throw a grenade into the process and see if uh, what emerges is his preferred outcome. I think where we're running into some issues is exactly to your point that, we have not seen any subs substantial negotiations between Iran and the United States or Iran and other global powers since the president threatened to sort of shred the steel, with the exception of Europe looking to it, sort of assure Iran that, mm -hmm. that they would continue to hold off on their sanctions and, and figure out ways to work with them. Uh, in the same way that the trade talks with China have seemed to have broken down at this point or uh, frustrations sort of across Europe have have persisted, although there has been a bit of a, a breakthrough there. Uh, but there's a real question of, you know, whether the president's technique of um, really provocative action will result in, in his desired outcomes. And that's going to be, I think, a major sort of test for his presidency and, and how we evaluate it outside of the tweets and the sort of rhetoric and, and um, uh, more political, I guess, considerations. But there's a real question across the board, I think, which you indicate. I mean, we're out of the Paris Climate Accords, but yet everybody else continues to be in there. Right. You know, we're out of the Iran nuclear deal, and yet the deal with all the other partners continues, at least for the moment. Iran has not yet said, okay, we're, we're because the United program, States yeah. is out, we're restarting our nukes. And then a lot of questions about what really happened after the Singapore summit, what really changed, doesn't look like much, you know. The remain, we, the U.S. secured the remains of um, yes, right. what we believe to be but American prisoners of, of war, but in terms of the actual nuclear, nuclear program. Nuclear program, well, yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. You know, what's the result of the summit in Helsinki? What's the result of what, with the tariffs against China other than, you know, a trade war with China? So across the board, how the question remains about how effective this, this um assertive foreign policy, <laughs> to use a polite word, uh, right. is, is in the long run really is. What's the impact? And and so far, President Trump has sort of um, garnered an advantage by the fact uh, that other countries have been unwilling to respond in kind. So mm -hmm. uh, it's unclear, and I think it, it probably differs from case to case, but I think some countries are making the calculation, you know, Donald Trump might be president for two more years. If we wait him out, we can sort of restore these agreements. Uh, other countries might be making the strategic yeah. decision to hold back until they, 
you know, make a significant. But a lot of Americans making that same calculation. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, it's a risky one, right? Because, you know, presidents historically are favored for reelection. And Donald Trump has um, has shown a a resilience among the the Republican base. Right. Absolutely. um, Sorry. Go. So, well, just so most of the attention in terms of the tweets has been on domestic issues, particularly. Uh, on the Mueller investigation, his 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 b- continued bombardment of Robert Mueller, the witch hunt, the seventeen Democrats, there was collusion. Yeah, but Hillary did it. I didn't do it. Uh, and then the Trump Tower meeting on June nine keeps emerging as more and more of a you know focus of maybe Mueller's investigation, and then Trump won't let it go. And saying last week. Uh, yeah, damn right we had this meeting, and damn right it was all about getting dirt on Hillary, but everybody does it, and it was perfectly legal. So this changing story doesn't help his case, does it? <laughs> it, it certainly doesn't help, but I think the question is whether it hurts. So uh, one argument could be the one that the president's attorneys make, which is that um, what what they were doing is not inherently illegal because they didn't ask Russia to hack. They didn't propose. They didn't propose Russia hack. They didn't uh, assist Russia in hacking, and that all campaigns go out and seek sort of dirt on their opponents because that's but part not of from foreign adversaries. And it is against, as you know, I mean, it is against the law to get any money or anything of value from a foreign foreigner. In an American election, campaign. right, and there's a real question. Uh, there's a there's just an open legal question about whether um, compromising material uh, in this case would would qualify for that sort of campaign. I'll tell you one thing: violation. as a former candidate, it has value. Yeah, uh, it has monetary value. And there's a second sort of legal, open legal question that that could be of concern for the president, which is that. He dictated the original statement about this meeting that's, uh, that said it was about adoptions, that he has clearly sought to um, influence the way people perceive it and, as a result, perhaps the way that the criminal justice investigators are looking into it. And so if you are building a obstruction of justice case against the president, then uh, this shifting narrative could contribute to, to that case. The core problem there, if you are somebody who thinks that this investigation is going to be fatal to Donald Trump, is that I'm not sure that uh, that obstruction case is going to be strong enough to convince Republicans in the House and the Senate to move forward with impeachment proceedings. And that's the only real mechanism that they have. Uh, So, well, I'm sure it won't. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Uh, But so, but the Republicans may not. The risk, of course, the Republicans may not always be in control of the House. That's true. Uh, Although you will still need that sort of two-thirds majority in the Senate that that would that is going to create uh, a sort of retaining wall for for President Trump. the third sort of concern about these tweets is that if the story shifts into a, well, not only was it about sort of getting material from Russia, but in fact, President Trump or then candidate Donald Trump did know about this meeting beforehand. Uh, you mean if what Michael Cohen says is true, that exactly. he, knew, he knew about the meeting ahead of time? Then that creates immense legal jeopardy for 
essentially President Trump's entire senior senior staff uh, and him and him. Uh, but you know, at that point, we see Don Don Jr., Jared Kushner, people like that yes, who are right. in legal jeopardy because of the, of perjury, either before Congress or before the FBI. But you know, with this changing, we were talking about this this morning. With this changing story, from there were never any meetings with Russians. Nobody ever met with it. To Yes, there were meetings, but there was no collusion, right? To now, well, there might have been collusion, but it's not a crime, right? It, it, it looks like the next line of defense is, you're damn right we colluded with the Russians and to get dirt on Hillary, uh, but what did you want? Hillary as president? I mean, that that may be bad, but that's not as bad as it would have been having Hillary as president, you know? Um, uh. Yeah, I mean, uh, obviously we've seen it's moving in that direction, (laughs) an incredible uh, trajectory so far. But, you know, there is a big difference between sort of rhetorical astonishment, which is something that I think many Americans have experienced at many points over the last two and a half, three years and legal jeopardy or political jeopardy and what. Donald Trump has shown whether it's in the foreign policy issues that we were talking about earlier or Charlottesville or endorsing somebody accused of pedophilia or, you know, whatever it is, um, he has shown a remarkable resilience and a uh, ability to avoid consequences for for what would be fatal. Okay, so if Donald Trump yet right at this moment is not in legal jeopardy, Paul Manafort is. Yes, very much so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and um, they keep making the point, so is there any link between the Paul Manafort trial and Donald Trump? Well, I think uh, uh, there is not an ex- explicit one because this is about uh, activities that Paul Manafort took before he entered the campaign. Um, I but, think, but some of those activities continued while he was campaign manager. And you can make a, a couple, even if they weren't campaign related, right? That. Really right. compelling arguments. One is that Paul Manafort wouldn't have been eager for the Trump business if he wasn't in sort of uh, financial and political jeopardy because mm-hmm. of uh, what was going on in Ukraine, and uh, and that he that that the Trump campaign should have and probably was aware of the fact that that Manafort was under FBI scrutiny for um, uh, some not only tax evasion, but a a kind of broad array of potential crimes. But uh, it's interesting to see how this plays out. I mean, obviously, I am sure Manafort's legal team is also considering as they move forward because he has steadfastly refused to sort of uh, bargain with the special counsel and say, okay, right. uh, I will admit to these crimes. Here's my dirt on Donald Trump. Uh, there is there is an interesting legal calculus going on there that would suggest um, uh, that the fact that Donald Trump is president of the United States is in the forefront of, of oh. Manafort and his lawyer's mind. There's also the legal calculus that if Manafort loses this first trial that that's when he will say okay 
I've got to I've got to cooperate with Mueller. Yeah. So there's rather than face right, the second I, trial. I mean, if you kind of play and the game, thirty years in prison. The game theory on this, right? You would assume that Paul Manafort doesn't want to spend mm-hmm. the rest of his life in prison, which is certainly what he's facing. Um, he may be just rolling the dice here and seeing if he can convince a jury that he's not guilty. Um, that would seem to be a tough argument based on the sheer amount of evidence that that the government has collected. But obviously. Mm-hmm. The burden of proof is on the prosecution, and you're presumed mm-hmm. innocent until proven guilty. Um, there is the calculus that Donald Trump could pardon him either immediately. I mean, Trump has not been afraid to sort of complain publicly on Twitter about uh, what he sees as unfair treatment. Or That's all he said about Manafort is that he's been treated unfairly. Yeah. Like and Al Capone. Like Al, <laughs> Al Capone. But I mean that you know that was his justification for pardoning Joe Arpaio or some of these other people. Um, so Trump could just do it. He could also do it on his way out the door, whether that's in two years or six years, uh, which is a relatively short sentence for the types mm-hmm. of crimes that Manafort's accused of. There is even the argument that I've heard from some people uh, around town that <laughs> that Manafort would rather be in prison than sort of out on the street because he owes an incredible amount of money to, uh, you know, a Russian oligarch. (laughs) And that is of concern as well. So that's fascinating. No, think about that. Yeah. Uh, so I don't, I don't presume to know uh, the sort of these Russian oligarchs. Yeah. Uh, fund his lifestyle. And yeah. So so there are, you know, (laughs) I don't know what, all is being considered by Manafort's legal team. It is certainly curious to see somebody presented an opportunity to uh, get out of what would likely be a, a life sentence in federal prison and and not take it. Right. Um, so all of these things we've talked about somehow relate to Donald Trump's uh, daily and hourly tweets. Um, that's just the way it is, right? That's never going to stop. I mean, there. There, there were at one point people who were saying we're going to try to, you know, reduce yeah. the, the level of. Uh, <laughs> I, I see they've no all indication. given up, haven't yeah, they? Yeah, ex- exactly. I mean, there's just there's really no evidence that that there's going to be any change in in tone or uh, behavior. And I mean, people oh. got who they elected, and uh, I don't think Trump is Trump certainly hasn't experienced the consequences of this sort of tweeting and in fact sees sort of positive um benefits from doing so the that i don't i don't know why he would be right, so everywhere john kelly was going to be the adult in the room right does john kelly even have any authority or influence at all in the white house well i thought it was interesting that um you know uh, there was a lot of uh, sort of speculation and expectation that he could be out the door. Right. Maybe even during this Bedminster yeah. trip, it was mm-hmm. it passed the one year anniversary of his term. Uh, he's seen as um, sort of diminished in some view uh, from people on the outside. Although people on the outside who want influence with the president have always had issues with John Kelly because of some of the systems he put in place. But then um, President Trump announced publicly that, that Kelly was planning to stay on through at least the yeah. end of the first term. So and Kelly announced it, right? Yeah. yeah I, I mean, I don't staff. think, I don't think that, um, you give that type of job security to somebody who you don't, uh, value. And I know for a fact that many on the white house staff really value John Kelly. 
um, they see him as uh, bringing some level of order to the to the chaos. I, yeah, I'm not gonna yeah. overstate that, but but there's there's immense power in having loyalty of your staff, even if that loyalty is not sort of reciprocated uh, out of the Oval Office. Uh, have you seen any? change uh, in White House communications with Bill Shine becoming director of communications or is Donald Trump Donald Trump still his own director of communications? Well, I mean, I think it is both fair to say that Donald Trump will always be the one driving the message or setting the agenda. Um, I will also say that there has been a noticeable change since Bill Shine came in terms of um, relations between the White House and, and the press corps. Uh, uh, getting better or worse? Not in a, in a positive direction. Um, <laughs> I think, uh, you know, what What I'll say is people often, when they ask me about this job and being in the briefing room, will ask about Sarah uh, Huckabee Sanders. And I think especially people who are uh, liberal assume that she is sort of a you know, horrible person, and how could you stand to work with her? I've actually uh, found over the last year that, for the most part, Sarah's a professional person that's sort of easy to uh, work with. She's obviously um, covering a president or, or working for a president that, that makes that job extremely difficult. Uh, what I will say is that I've been really disappointed in the way that Sarah's handled the last couple weeks since uh, Bill Shine came on board because for somebody who had sort of stood between the, the president and um, some of his impulses in terms of banning media access or uh, attacks on the press or, you know, labeling us as the enemy of the people, mm -hmm. these sorts of things, uh, Sarah had, had previously sort of, I think, resisted some of those impulses, and, and that seems to have changed in the last couple of weeks. And it's hard not to see the variable that's changed as the entrance of Bill Shine into the, into the communication. Uh, what should we read into the fact that the White House only held three briefings in the entire month of July? I mean, uh, I think that's evidence of how hard uh, Sarah's job is, uh, and that her that she has decided on a strategy of trying to limit those those news conferences that that aren't you know they're they are not a um, they're not a way for the White House to generate effective or positive coverage. If you're looking, at, if you're a White House official and you're looking at it strategically, that is an opportunity for people to ask hard, specific questions for which there are not necessarily good answers. Uh, I, I know that people at the White House, though, would say that a big reason for that has been a uptick in availability of uh, the president right. himself yeah. and asking questions of him. And I think that that's to some extent fair, but that um, the unfortunate byproduct, you know, obviously I would always rather ask President Trump a question than, than Sarah a question because you're hearing it directly from the source. I think that uh, those press briefings when done right um, or having a functioning press shop when done right play a really important role in helping it, uh, to clarify and explain policy. Yeah, and getting your message out there, which yeah. we saw uh, under the various press secretaries with uh, President Obama when you and I were there uh, almost every day. Um, the president has said that uh, coming into this election year, uh, despite not having, not having had such a winning record in 2017, that he's going to be out there maybe five days a week campaigning for candidates uh, all around the country. 
There's so many questions there, but do you think, is this just bluster, or do you think this is what he wants to, wants to do and will do? And um, how can he do that and do his job? Uh, okay, we'll unpack, we'll unpack some of that. Um, I do think that it's probably what he wants to do. Yes, that, I, I was going to answer that one for yeah, you, but yes, yeah, that's yeah. obvious. Uh, I don't know that it is what he will do for a couple of reasons. One is uh, I'm not sure how many races he will be a benefit rather than a detriment. Um, there's certainly a number of very secure House Republicans that would love to have Donald Trump out. And yeah. there's certainly fundraising that he can do that that will help Republicans across the board. Um, I don't know if him going to swing districts, just like President Obama, mm-hmm. helps or hurts. I mean, mm-hmm. the sort of ongoing joke of the Obama, totally. the Obama White House was that, uh, you know, him showing up was the kiss of death for, for a candidate. Yeah. I mean, it was amazing how many different places that we went and that democrat you know that house democrat or governor or senate candidate ended up losing and uh it's it is weird to think of them as similar uh obama and trump but they are at a similar sort of political uh Mm -hmm. political stage um but i you know President Trump loves to travel. He loves getting on the plane. He loves getting to sort of interact with people and show them around on that plane. He, he loves the rallies. He loves those yeah. adoring crowds. Yeah, right? exactly. You know, and so true. I think he will be looking for as many of these opportunities as he can find. Which means you're going to have some interesting uh, <laughs> encounters yourself with the crowds at these rallies. Of course. Uh, yes, right. <laughs> uh, with the beast there in the pen and, uh, and, and people flipping the bird to you and all the rest. <laughs> Justin Sig, so good to see you, my friend. Thanks, Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. All right, at Bloomberg.com, you can follow Justin. Have a great this day, folks. We'll look for you tomorrow. Bill Press Show.